Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first show of Alien Talk Podcast, a brand new program where we discuss all things about aliens, UFOs, and anything that's considered to be on the fringe. I am Joe Landry, here with my co-host and good friend, Laurie Oport. Hi, Laurie. Hey, Joe. So the two of us are actually police officers in the state of Arizona, which is where we both live, and we have spent a good bit of time investigating criminal cases, and some of them being a little strange and bizarre in their own right. Oh. Oh, that's uh, putting it mildly. I know, really. <laughs> uh, Laurie and I are both authors. Uh, he wrote his book in 2016, Let Us Descend, The Biblical First Contact, which is a thorough research work on ancient alien theory. And I wrote mine in 2018, The Gnostics Fire, a mystery novel about secret cults and supernatural unearthly powers. Um, and I and also, we both come from pretty strong religious upbringings uh, that inspired both of us to become deeply interested in the Bible and ancient history, as well as the wonders of the whole universe. So I think we bring a lot of knowledge to this program and a lot of enthusiasm as well. Don't you think, Laurie? Absolutely, Joe. Yeah, in fact, it was our careers in law enforcement that actually led us to where we are today. We are writing books and having podcasts now about aliens. Um, and as these episodes continue, we'll definitely uh, shed light on much of the ancient alien and, and UFO phenomena subject matter as, as we continue. Yeah, definitely. So go ahead and share your background with us. Yeah, so a little about me and how I came to be involved with the ancient alien apostasis. So I was raised in a Pentecostal home and was practically in church every time the doors were open. Hmm. So I have approximately 21 years or so in Christian church ministry, uh, which includes a time of Bible college and uh, evangelistic ministry, uh, preaching, uh, the head of prison ministry, the head of new converts ministry, uh, and that sort of thing, and even the street ministry. So I was even one of those holy rollers you see preaching on street corners telling everyone they're going to hell if they do not <laughs> repent. It's, it's hard for me to picture you doing that. Yeah, I know, huh? Yeah, that was me. Um, I even argued with some people about how God didn't create aliens, only humans and animals. However, it was my time in law enforcement where I began to question my religious upbringing after investigating horrific crimes, right. you know, where you know, we've seen a lot, um, and where I've asked the questions, why, you know, why, why would the being we know as the divine and benevolent uh, deity allow such evil? It was from there and after numerous police investigations that I eventually developed that analytical mind and questioned everything from then on. So in law enforcement, you know, we cannot just take one side of a story when investigating a crime. And as you know, we, we had to take the witness statement, the victim statement, the uh, suspect statement, and possibly even more witness statements. Mm -hmm. And then that's when we have to take everyone's statement and look at all the evidence that is presented to us. And then, you know, by the preponderance of that evidence, and would, do we establish probable cause? So what kind of cops would we be if we only look, took one side of of the story and that was it and, and, and not anybody else's. So with that said, as a detective, I had a, I had to review all the police reports 
in the unit I was in and, and prepared them for criminal trial with the prosecution. So I had to critique those reports to make sure th uh, the officers had their probable cause and the Miranda warnings listed in the reports. Uh, so when I would prepare a sermon later on in the week, I found myself going through the same process with the Bible. And that's when I began to notice the inconsistencies and the contradictions. Right. So, yeah, so after noticing the biblical characteristics of God, they were, were not matching up with what we know today from today's science and uh, astronomy, the knowledge that we've attained now. And so I, I'd be, I started down that road of studying the ancient alien theory, uh, which I, I believe provides us with a, a better theory to the truth of our origins. Yes, the, uh, the pursuit of truth is actually a rigorous process, and we see that uh, in the fields of science and as well as criminal justice. Uh, there are ardent and, and thorough um, investigations and analysis of, uh, of evidence. So finding the truth is not as easy as one, two, three. It can take a long, a long time and, and a lot of introspection and a lot of study. Very interesting. Yeah, exactly. So how about you? Yeah, so I also grew up in a Christian family during my early childhood. I was raised as a Catholic back in my hometown of Pittsburgh. And then when I was about 10 years old, we started going to Pentecostal churches. We eventually became part of the Assembly of God denomination, and I spent all my teenage years there. As a matter of fact, my dad became an ordained minister for the congregation we belonged to. So my family was very involved with the services, the Bible studies, and all the events. Uh, my brother and I participated in numerous youth group activities like conventions, retreats, rallies, uh, fun summer camps. And I made a lot of Christian friends. So we were all very much immersed in evangelism and, and the scriptures. And I, I spent a good deal of time as a young adult researching uh, pondering and conversing with people about matters of faith and Christian living. Um, shortly before I joined the Air Force in 1989, I, I know I'm dating myself here. Just a little. Right. Where does the time go? Um, so it was then that we stopped being a part of the Assembly of God and the Pentecostals, and I went back to the Catholic Church. My parents also did not long afterward. And then when I was in the Air Force, I became a little involved with the chaplaincy. I did things like organized Bible studies, prayer breakfasts, and I served as a chaplain representative in my squadron, where I would help coordinate the religious needs of the enlisted men, uh, the enlisted people, uh, with the right resources. Uh, I was also a lector and Eucharistic minister for the Catholic Masses on base, and during this whole time, I started to become very intrigued with studying the Bible and its history. And I delved into what's known as apologetics. Uh, and that is the process by which to explain faith through an appeal to reason and science, and thus defend your beliefs against criticism. That led me to want to expand my understanding of religion, all religions, even further by researching as much as I could. Eventually, I was introduced to Zachariah Sitchin's work, and I started to read up on the whole ancient alien theory and became interested in that. Yeah, it's certain, certainly uh, something that makes you think, doesn't it? And to think in a way that you were never thought, thought to think. And you know, to question things about all the Bible stories that we were brought up with 
in our Christian faith ever since we were kids. And you start to see things differently now and from a new and different perspective altogether. Yeah, definitely. It definitely puts things into a different light, a different way of looking at it. Um, so before we, we begin, I, I want to put out this disclaimer uh, that Laurie and I are mere students, uh, humble students in the quest for knowledge. Uh, as for myself, I make no positive declaration in the belief of aliens or any kind of paranormal occurrence. The two of us are here merely asking the questions and seeing where the evidence takes us whether it's personal accounts or documented incidents or scriptures, whether it be from the Bible or, or even the Muslim Quran and the Hindu Vedas, uh, we examine and discuss these things and whatever is intriguing about them. And there really is much that is intriguing. Oh, intriguing indeed. However, um, I would like to add that I do make a positive claim to the ancient alien theory, of course, as I personally see its merit in not only explaining the visual phenomena of UFOs and encounters, uh, but helping us understand our origins. So from the research I've done on the subject, I truly believe it is a sound apostasis. Um, Joe and I are two people seeking the truth about who we are as a species, where and how we originated to where we are headed. So the information we provide is to be debated, is to be critiqued, and perhaps even proven wrong. Um, we're not going to get butt hurt, okay? So we are here to learn and accept whatever is found to be true and factual. The rest, well, we'll continue to ponder and attempt to come up with the closest thing to the truth. So yes, we, uh, we definitely yes. have thick skin. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. Our careers, uh, we definitely had to have that. So, um, but we bring these topics to the table of discussion like we would in a court of law. Uh, we will do our best to bring forth our material and research as by preponderance of the evidence. So we may not have all of it, but hopefully enough to prove our point. So it's like having enough pieces of a, of a puzzle to know what the end picture will be without having it all. Yeah. You know, I would say this is a necessary uh, subject discussion and debate uh, for, for all critical thinkers, uh, because there is so much that we still don't know about our world. Uh, about our history, the human history. So we must discuss these things. And I think the degree of skepticism is, is completely up to the individual. So, so let's go ahead and uh, talk a little about Zachariah Sitchin. Uh, for those who don't know of him or maybe never even heard of him, uh, he was a Russian-born historian who back in the 60s studied and translated cuneiform tablets that were recovered from Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq, and he found what he believed were very old myths that included details about something called Nibiru. And that Nibiru was described as being an actual planet. In 1976, uh, Zachariah Sitchin published this in his book, The Twelfth Planet, his first in a six-part series called The Earth Chronicles. And he goes on to explain that these tablets, and indeed the whole mythology of the Sumerians, talked about cosmic things. That should not have been known to these ancient people. And take, for instance, that back at that time, uh, they could not see Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto as they are too far away to be visible with the unaided eye. So the ancient people shouldn't have been, shouldn't have known about them. Um, these planets weren't discovered until after the late 18th century 
with the use of telescopes by European and American astronomers. Yet Sitchin found references to nine celestial bodies, not including the Earth, Sun, and Moon. So that means they knew not only about Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, which were visible to them at that time, but also Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, which were not visible to them at that time. And then also an additional planet, not visible at all, which is Nibiru. Now, in his title, he's including the sun and moon as planets. So when you add the Earth, the other eight planets, and then Nibiru, you get 12 for the entire solar system. And of course, he didn't bother to include the other moons of the planets of Jupiter and Saturn and all the other planets that we know about today. And that's beside the point. The question is, how did the ancient Sumerians know all this? They shouldn't have with their technology at the time. And it's from there that everything unfolds in a strange way. Laurie, I'll let you divulge more on this. Yeah, so, I mean, some believe that Sitchin can't be taken seriously and that his translations of Sumerian cuneiform were wrong. Well, here's the thing. So Sitchin may not have been 100% correct, but to be fair, he also could not have been 100% wrong either. So he invested over 30 years in translating Sumerian texts, and I think 60 years of his life was dedicated to writing his books, and therefore he must be given strong consideration. Um, In fact, an Italian researcher and linguist, Alessandro de Montes, uh, analyzed 40 of Sitchin's controversial translations, and he came to the conclusion that 38 of them were were legit and and justified in academic dictionaries and in in accordance with others. And only two were unable to be verified. So, I mean, that says a lot. So that's something you do have to take into consideration. So, but Sitchin also translated that the Sumerians knew that Uranus and Neptune were blue and greenish colored twins. But a Voyager spacecraft confirmed this in 1986 and 89 during their flybys. Hmm. But but actually, Joe, one of the reasons why he believed in Nibiru as a planet was because of cylinder seal VA243, um, which is in a museum in Berlin right now. It depicts 12 celestial bodies of our solar system. And it clearly shows a star surrounded by 11 circular objects to include the Earth's moon and where Pluto originated from, which was as a moon of planet. And science scientists and astronomers agree now that, yes, uh, Pluto was once a moon of Saturn. That's right. Yep. And, this, and, and there's got to be a reason for why it was placed out there at the edge of our solar system, which is, you know, it's now 17 degrees off of the ecliptic, which nothing should be off the ecliptic. So what, you know, so what happened there? This is all explained, of course, in the ancient Sumerian uh, texts. So what we must take into account here is that scholars, philosophers, and researchers of today, they can't, you can't speak with absolute certainty as to what exactly occurred back in antiquity. None of us were alive then. None of us were back there. Were back there. So we do our best to put forth our own interpretations and conclusions by presenting the evidence is to you, the listener of this podcast, or if you're the reader of a book. So it would be up to the individual to take everything we and others like us present. And you have to make your own decision as to whether you agree or disagree with our conclusions. So the point is, if someone claims that Sitchin was wrong, someone else can come along and point out their inaccuracies as well. Right. So our And so our goal is to discuss questionable writings 
from the Bible and other ancient texts that clearly describe UFO and contacts with it with an alien species. The material sources we obtain will present to you in a manner that is likened to that of presenting a criminal case in court, which it stated earlier. We're going to show you the preponderance of the evidence. So as you follow our podcast each week, you'll be amazed at uh, some of the in-depth topics uh, we will delve into. And you may have to drink a glass of whiskey as you listen. (laughs) (laughs) At least one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's a fascinating topic. It's really more than just one topic. It's a pretty broad spectrum of of subjects that cover many different topics, uh, including science, history, philosophy, and religion. It's, It's very interesting that they talked about Uranus and Neptune being blue, greenish colored twins uh, for two planets that shouldn't have been visible at all to the unaided eye. Uh, how did they uh, have that information uh, back then? Uh, we just found that out recently, like you said, with the Voyager spacecraft uh, getting into close contact with those planets. So mm-hmm. um, interesting, uh, uh, kind of bizarre. Uh, actually, Nibiru uh, means the crossing or the cross, uh, which is possibly an allusion to how it crosses the ecliptic, like you mentioned, the uh, the ecliptic being this, um, so if you want to imagine, a very large disk uh, on which all the orbits line up, uh, that the planets, the Earth, uh, the Earth, the Moon, the Sun are all kind of in line on this disk, and, and Pluto is not in, on a line. It's like 17 degrees off of that disk, and the Bureau is even more so. And it has a very long elliptical orbit, which puts it far away from the sun a good bit at a time um, from, from the rest of the solar system. And again, it's, it's odd that the Sumerians would have had that kind of knowledge. Uh, there, there really aren't too many records at all after their time that suggest the ancient people had any understanding of uh, the universe being like this, being sun-centered and with planets having elliptical orbits uh, on this sort of disc out in space, what we call the ecliptic. Yeah, um, there is so much to cover in the upcoming podcast, of course, but just look at how difficult it was for the church to accept you know, Galileo and Giordano Bruno's beliefs about our solar system. You know, they were punished for actually being right. Uh, even today, with all of the discoveries of planets and star clusters out there by, by telescopes like Hubble and Kepler, that people still find it impossible for a planet like Nibiru to exist. Uh, so I believe that, therefore, the, the possibility of this existence is very high. Yeah, it took the world a long time to accept the sun-centered universe model. Uh, it really did a strange amount of time when you think about it. Um, but let's, uh, let's go to the book of Genesis here. Let's uh, kind of delve into that. Some strange stuff in the book of Genesis. We find what seems to be correlations and references to things that are otherworldly. So let's uh, kind of talk about this from a literary and a historical standpoint. Uh, one of the things that we've learned from Sitchin is that a, a Babylonian creation narrative does exist and that it's even longer than the one in the Bible. It's called the Enuma Elish, and it means in the beginning, which is the actual opening sentence of the, of the epic. Um, Laurie, how do you think this compares or differs from what is in the book of Genesis? And what is the implication for extraterrestrial life? We'll be back after a quick break. 
Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Well, many scoff at the mere mention of the Bible and scriptures by counting it as nothing more than fairy tales. However, even though the Bible has its inaccuracies, it also has some accuracies as well. So we don't we don't claim that the Bible is the so-called word of God. It's it's just a collection of ancient texts written by men who claim to have heard from their deity and to write these things down. It was men that wrote the Bible. Um, a lot of the Bible contains historical documentation, genealogies, and locations, which can actually be confirmed and have been confirmed. So to say that it's a bunch of fairy tales, that's a naive statement. You can't do that. So, um, so, so far, our research has led us to believe, like the majority of scholars, that the Genesis account is a direct come down from the Babylonian Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian creation myth. And this is this has six uh, tablets of of uh, action and one tablet of summation, which is what Genesis, uh, the book of Genesis, is is talking about with these seven days of creation, the six days of of uh, action, and the one day of rest. Yeah, so, yeah. So this creation myth, uh, you know, this this was paraphrased upon by a newly founded religion, uh, in order to fit their own belief narrative. So as we discuss these things, we hope that you can see the dots being connected. And we're going to do our best to show that these Homo sapiens, us, are an engineered species by an alien race of, of giants, quite possibly the Anunnaki, uh, who descended long ago in search of gold. And they later became the gods of our earthly religions, and they instilled the laws of civilization in us. So like you said, the meaning of Enumelish is actually the first line in Genesis 1, in the beginning. And that's the first comparison we have. Yeah, that's a pretty strong connection, I have to say. Mm-hmm. What you said about the tablets, the seven tablets, the seven days of creation. Um, interesting relation. Now, you know, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, uh, it says the Pishon River flows from Eden and winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. It even says good gold, uh, as well as aromatic resin and onyx. Um, it's strange way it doesn't mention silver, um, but we're not certain on where the Paishan River or the land of Havala were actually located. It's commonly accepted that these places were somewhere in or around Mesopotamia, but most of us tend to gloss over this, this mention here of gold and not think much about its significance. Why would gold be mentioned at all in the description of Eden. I mean, what use would it be to Adam and Eve? They shouldn't have needed it as money. Uh, they would have no need to buy land or food. They were free to roam as they liked and eat of what they liked all for free, right? Uh, they shouldn't have had any special reason to adore it for its beauty since the garden was a, described as a perfect paradise and it is said that everything within it was splendid and beautiful. Um, 
what, what do you, when you look at that, what does that tell you when you hear about the Garden of Eden having gold? Yeah, so, so why is there at all as being noteworthy when, when we're talking about the very first humans? And by the way, this sort of holy adoration of gold is not unique to Judeo-Christianity. It's really every culture on earth. Everywhere. In- everywhere. Yeah, the Inca and the Maya even thought, uh, even thought their civilizations rise uh, thousands after those of the Sumerians and Egypt, Egyptians. Um, they have oral traditions of creation stories that are very similar. And they had a deep-rooted belief that gold actually belonged to the gods. Uh, I, for one, laughed at this theory when I first heard it on nighttime radio. Then one day while reading the Bible, I came across that scripture, or just passages of scripture you just mentioned in Genesis 2, 11 to 12, um, after the deity had placed Adam in the garden, and it reads, per the New King James Version, the name of the first is Pison, it is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. But then I thought, well, why would God care about gold and how good it was? And this was similar to what I heard on the radio. So that's when I began reading the Zechariah Sitchin books. This is when I took interest and discovered that the Genesis stories are indeed paraphrased material from a much older source. And you bring up a good point and reference the need for gold. And you're right. There was no currency system at the time. And therefore, what need was there for gold? I am reminded of another scripture in Haggai 2.8 in the New International Version says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. So the biblical God had already declared that gold was his. And this is most likely the reason why the indigenous people of Mesoamerican culture, they willingly, without hesitation, gave up their gold to Cortez and the conquistadors because they believed in a prophecy of their god Quetzalcoatl's return in 1519, which luckily, or unluckily, the the same year Cortez arrived. Right, and they said, here's the gold because it belongs to you. If they thought he was God, uh, they said, hey, this is your gold, it belongs to you. And as you mentioned in Haggai 2.8, uh, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. So this is kind of a theme in religious thinking of, of people all around the world. Uh, now, when you, you talk about the paraphrasing of the Genesis stories, um, you know, some people might think that's sort of a, a difficult to believe. You know, why would uh, the Bible have things paraphrased or condensed? And the thing we need to know about the Old Testament is that the form in which we have it now, which everybody's familiar, um, came about right around the 5th century B.C., when Jewish scribes compiled their canon. And this includes the Torah, uh, which is the Pentateuch, uh, the five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Yeah, it's just after the Babylonian captivity, when the Persians permitted them to return to their homeland of Judah, as mentioned by uh, the prophet Nehemiah, right? Exactly. Uh, Artaxerxes, the Persian king, <laughs> said they could return and also reconstruct Jerusalem and the temple, as it is said in Nehemiah 6.15 and Ezra 7.8. Um, so this is a new period in Judaism. And before that, the Old Testament books, the way we know them, really did not exist as a standard literary tradition. 
there were always various and different sources. Uh, they were just sort of floating around for quite some time. Much of it was oral tradition, but some of it was also written down on scrolls and tablets, but they weren't consistent or dogmatized. It wasn't until after many centuries and generations that uh, they came to us to be known in the way we have them today. And these are the epic stories and shared mythologies of many cultures to include the Hebrew people who had their own unique tradition, which derived in some extent from the Sumerians and Akkadians. Um, and this connection is made pretty well just by looking at Abraham and the story of Abraham and his family, who are said to come from Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of Shinar, which is likely a variant of the word Sumer. So the point is a case can be made to say that Genesis, especially the first 20 chapters, came from something else, uh, certainly something much older than the 5th century BC, and it's very likely that it could have been paraphrased and condensed from these other sources. Um, so, and we, we've actually been able to demonstrate that, you know, with the, the tablets that Zachariah Sitchin studied, and here is a very long uh, narrative of creation which is similar, um, but longer than the one found in the book of Genesis. So there is a, there's also an extraterrestrial reason that gold is important. And then Sitchin goes into that as well. The Anunnaki needed it for their planet. Uh, it, it seems that it played a role in keeping the atmosphere on Nibiru capable of providing a temperate climate. Uh, somehow it helped, in re helped retain internal heat from the core, its core being hot like that of the Earth. Uh, the way that they were able to live on their world, which uh, spends a good deal of time extremely far from the sun, as it has this long elliptical orbit, uh, its atmosphere had to be able to hold a considerable amount of heat, which was sort of seeping up from the surface from the core. Metal being suspended aloft as a fine dust seemed to help in that regard, sort of acting like a blanket. And gold was the best choice. Uh, it must be a tremendous quantity that we're talking about if it was needed for something like this. So when the Anunnaki found out that there is a lot of metal on Earth, they want to go and mine it and extract it and send it back to their world to be used for this purpose. Uh, that's why it's said that gold belongs to the Lord and why it's associated with such reverence and awe, almost treated like it is divine in and of itself, because it was of the gods the extraterrestrials who mined it from here and took it up to the heavens, which is their home planet. Um, this has been recorded in our religious traditions through these references, the importance of what we know as precious metals and stones. Every religion around the world holds these precious metals and stone as having godly and divine powers. So what, well, how do you uh, see this in terms of the parallel between our reverence for gold and the, uh, extraterrestrials need for it on their planet. And yeah, it it was possibly the Anunnaki's rise to high technology that possibly affected their ozone layer. And gold is very important in protection and from radiation. And NASA uses it on their spacecraft as a protector, but and it's also used as a conductor of electricity. So the gods slash extraterrestrials needed the gold and needed it badly because time was of the essence. It was becoming too toilsome for the other Anunnaki who were working in the mines and therefore a hybrid species was created. And that was a slave race. It was us, the Homo sapiens. 
So it makes you wonder, Joe, where or what heaven really is. So think about it. So Sumerian gods needed gold for their planet. Biblical God places Adam in the land of Havilah to tend the land uh, where the gold abounds. And I'm thinking that our so-called heaven may be a planet such as Nibiru. Um, if we believe in the biblical God and that God is a Sumerian God, then heaven is, God, it's got to be Nibiru. Because why would scriptures describe heaven as a city with golden gates and streets paved with gold? So I'm thinking that gold pavement will most definitely assist with helping the atmosphere. And our creators just absolutely adored it. And, and that's why. It, lots of it. Love lots of it. <laughs> yeah. And that's why it's so precious. So, you know, maybe that's why you know, humans today or all the countries today have such large amounts of gold reserves. Hey, who knows? Maybe they're getting ready for when the gods return. Hey, don't put us in slavery again. Here's all the gold <laughs> that yeah. we've that we've gotten for you. Um, but now onto the creation story in Genesis, which is not very detailed. No. And, you know, it's, it's given to us in a nutshell version and it's condensed. So it attributes creation to God and in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't go into detail as to when, why, or how he created everything. So the Enumilish describes the creation of the solar system by referring to the planets as gods. So it describes how the sun, Mercury, and a planet called Tiamat were first on scene. Then the other planets followed. But it was another planet, which they called Marduk, uh, Babylonian Marduk, and a.k.a. Nibiru and Sumerian. So Marduk and Nibiru were identified. Same. Okay. Yeah. Was pulled into the solar system, you know, off of that ecliptic, and eventually collided with Tiamat, you know, causing her to be split in two. So one half was shattered and became the asteroid belt. I believe the Bible mentions that as the hammered bracelet. And while the other half was sent into another orbit and became the Earth, where, where, which is what we're rotating on now. So this is why Earth is the only planet that has plate tectonics. Because during that collision, Tiamat was cracked open. And so in the vacuum of space, it now had to condense itself down to the smallest uh, sphere it, it, it can be. Um, it's, it's similar to what we see with the, the, nat, the astronauts in the space station, you know, when they open up their packages in, in zero gravity and you see these tiny liquid, uh, the, the liquid that comes out that forms into these small little liquid balls. So that's what the Earth did. So um, then we arrive at the creation of Adam and Eve by God creating them from clay and and then a rib and, and placed them in Eden to tend and till the land. So Sumerian story is that Inki, an Anunnaki god and a scientist, he created humans as a slave species, the Ilulu, which is the primitive worker. So they created the Adamu and placed um, placed them in the Edan, E-D-A-N, to mine the gold. So thus telling the tale of human origins as a primitive worker and slave species. Again, that's why we were created. This, of course, occurred somewhere around uh, 200,000 to 250,000 years ago. And geneticists agree now that we do not exist genetically outside of 250,000 years. They, counted, they came to that conclusion after you know, collecting all the mitochondrial DNA from all the, 
the females of the earth from different countries, you know, Africa, Europe, and South America, you name it. Um, so before that, we were hunter-gatherers, and we never progressed until something miraculous happened to us. It was an overnight change that occurred when compared to the slow process of millions of years of evolution. So we were then created from the being that already existed and was the rightful and indigenous species. And this was most likely the Homo erectus or possibly the Amas on this planet. Um, that's why we have 99% similar DNA as to um, the chimpanzee. Right, the primates. The, other the primates, yeah. So uh, they placed their mark upon us, is what the Sumerian tablets say, uh, with us, the primitive beings, and they created us into their image and after their likeness. So therefore, we are not a, a transition. We are a transformation, uh, which is the, which is what the late Lloyd Pye uh, once claimed. So from this perspective, both evolution and creation are correct to a point. Yeah, and you can even see in the mythology where they, they have the gender for Tiamat and Marduk, Marduk being male and Tiamat being female. Uh, so these were planets, but in the mythology that was told by the Sumerians and later by the Babylonians and the Syrians, uh, they became people or, or gods, gods with gender, gods and goddesses. Uh, and that brings us to the part that deals with us and why we're here, as well as the role uh, that the gods or the Anunnaki uh, played in that. The Enuma Elish has them, uh, the Anunnaki that is, has them making humans, and there are creators, as you mentioned, and that it happened in Eden. Now, the word, uh, or Edan, as you said, E-D-A-N, um, a derivative. Now, the word comes from the Akkadian word for plane or step, and the Hebrew may be re related to the word for pleasure, but it doesn't seem to be a specific place, like a spot on the globe that we can just point to. At least we can't find any substantial reference to it. Uh, so it's a little bit vague, even with the mention of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which we know are in modern-day Iraq. Um, we still have these undiscovered rivers of the Gihon and the Pishon rivers, and it makes it more unclear. Um, we have these four rivers, or these four rivers may just simply be used as an allegory in, in Babylonian mythology for paradise. Uh, and we have other cultures that make references to a garden paradise uh, in, in their religious tradition and uh, being in other places of the world. So it may not be a specific spot, but a state of existence. Now, do you think Eden or Edan uh, is where some believe it is, which is Mesopotamia and the Persian Gulf? Or is it about something else, maybe something bigger? And what does that have to do with us being created by the Anunnaki? Yeah, so this goes back to your earlier comment on the land of Havila, which also appears in Genesis 25 and 25:18, where it's described there as a as a territory opposite Egypt in Skur and towards Assyria. So I believe it was a small, secluded area with a biosphere of some sort in a large landmass encompassing a very sizable ter territory. So which is why we cannot find it. So since the land of Havilah is mentioned as having gold that is good, then it makes sense that Adam slash the Adamu, our ancestors, uh, were indeed created to tend and till, which is per the biblical account, 
and to mine the gold, which is per the Sumerian account. So we were created to become the primitive workers in slave race. We were created to worship slash work for, the Hebrew word for worship is actually Avod, A-V-O-D, the gods. We were created to work for the gods slash Anunnaki, the Elohim slash extraterrestrials. And the point you made earlier about the male and female, the Elohim were actually male and females. And the scripture verse should actually be you know, in the image of the Elohim created they them uh, in the image of the gods, the Elohim, male and female created they them. So yes, the both male and female uh, Anunnaki slash Elohim. And that's why we were created in their image, both male and females. So a couple other sections of, of the Genesis account uh, that are of utmost significance in Western cultures are the flood and the Tower of Babel. Now, we'll get into the flood at another time because there's uh, because there are a lot of other traditions that tie into it. There's a lot of material on it, Definitely. especially when we get into things like the Book of Enoch and the Epic of Gilgamesh. But let's hit the Tower of Babel. So in chapter 11, it describes all people having one language or at least a common speech. That in itself seems peculiar because we know that new dialects can evolve relatively quickly especially when groups of people are separated from one another. So this is implying that humanity was pretty close-knit at the time, and it says that they settled in the plain in, in Shinar, and most likely meaning Sumer, um, which we touched upon earlier, and said they wanted to build a city with a tower that reaches heaven, most yeah. likely a ziggurat. Right. Yeah, so you bring this up in your book, where we find God not only referring to himself in the or the plural, like Elohim, which is plural for L, L is singular, Elohim is, is plural in Hebrew, but he, he's also showing himself to be not all-knowing or not, and not all-present, uh, as it says, he comes down to see what everyone is doing, and when he or they uh, find out, uh, he or they are not pleased, uh, but instead of just stopping people uh, from building the ziggurat, the Tower of Babel, it says he confused their language and scattered them over the earth. And you claim that this shows that God is not acting like a spiritual being, but instead a organic, uh, physical one. And you go on to point out that other scriptures, uh, God or Yahweh is described in a way that you say is a flesh and blood uh, creature, much like we are creatures. You think these strange depictions of God as uh, all-powerful and dwelling in the sky, yet at the same time coming down among humans, sometimes face-to-face -face with them, that this is a result of early humans, ancient people, encountering these creatures, these flesh and blood creatures, and not being able to comprehend them with their ancient minds. Yes. Um, and this is why I don't believe that any of Earth's religions have... Um, have it right exactly um he and they have to be flesh and blood creatures of some kind and the first hint from the bible itself is let us make man in our image and after our likeness definitely says that yep so if we are if we are in their image then they must have heads with eyes noses mouths thin arms bodies legs etc so in the Bible, God speaks, 
he walks, he travels about the sky, he rests, he eats, he becomes joyful, sad, angry, and jealous. Though the worldview, traditional perspective of God is not the same as to what's recorded in the Bible. Now, there may be some um, some being out there that started everything, started the Big Bang, and but it cannot be that being just cannot be any of the gods that we know of today in in the, any of our religions. So the the all-knowing, the all-powerful, and ever-present deity is described in Genesis as not knowing what's occurring on Earth, not seeing some events happening, but had to descend in order to observe what's taking place. Now, if he's the all-knowing of everywhere present being, he should already know this. So a good scripture describing this is in Genesis 18, verses 20 to 21. Um, then again, the whole chapter is describing an ancient first contact, I believe. And it says in the New King James Version, And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because of their sin, because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So he did not already know, nor did he already see it, and he wasn't already present at the time. But we take the Bible at its word, then this truly is a flesh and blood being, not human, but the only other explanation would have to be extraterrestrial. And if God is believed to be not of this world, then all facts of the matter, God is an extraterrestrial because this actually literally means, the term extraterrestrial literally means not of this world. Yeah, that's what it means. Um, as, yep. So as to comprehending who these creatures were, ancient people did not have that vocabulary to describe accurately, nor did they understand technology like we do today. So if you and I went back in time, you and I would totally have a different description of what they saw. Therefore, you will often read passages, scriptures, describing things that they witnessed as, you know, looking like the face of a bear with the body of a lion and wings like an eagle. They also had no words for airplane, helicopters, or spaceships, but they described them instead as, you know, chariots and clouds. And a great example of, of this is that of uh, Mount Sinai First Contact where Yahweh descended on the mountain in a cloud that came from a direction. He shook the mountain and produced smoke and fire as it descended. Now, how does a spirit being produce smoke and fire? Why would a spirit being produce <laughs> smoke and fire? This is produced because of wood, fuel, and oil. So this doesn't make sense. This is what I mean by some of the biblical characteristics of God not matching with what we know today from you know, science and, and astronomy and such. Right. It doesn't match the stories of ghosts, of spirits that sort of transcend the need for physical things like you know, fire and clouds and, and flying objects. Um, so, yeah, it is all kind of is proof of point that uh, we can't rule out the possibility that these stories from the Bible are describing misunderstood uh, species and misunderstood technology uh, that they encountered thousands of years ago. Uh, very interesting uh, material, a lot of material, and fortunately that's all the time we have for today, and we covered quite a bit. However, 
Uh, I don't think we've even scratched the surface, Lori. No, not at all. And and that's why we we are continuing to uh, to have more of these shows because there's so much to talk about. The stuff to cover is is nearly endless. Yeah, that's right. And we'll be here again next Sunday, same time, one o'clock Mountain Time, to get uh, more into these ancient writings and the extraterrestrial things that are said in them, namely uh, the Book of Enoch. Some very fascinating and uh, bizarre, say the least, bizarre things that are found in the Book of Enoch. So we'll get more into that next week on Alien Talk podcast. Yeah, this is a this is a great episode, Joe. I uh, I enjoy talking about this stuff, um, and I'm glad to be here to to have these fascinating conversations uh, with you. Me too, and I look forward to doing it again. Before we go, uh, I want to say if you enjoyed our discussion today. We encourage you to check out our books. Laurie's book is Let Us Descend, The Biblical First Contact, and mine is The Gnostic's Fire. Uh, They're both available through Amazon and Barnes & Noble, as well as some other book-selling platforms. And uh, you can even get a free preview of them on Google Play. So please take a glance at them. Uh, We think you'll, you'll enjoy them very much. So until next time, everyone. Stay safe, stay peaceful, and most of all, stay curious. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.